Hello and welcome to the Union News Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Union Juice Podcast, the UK's only all things union programme, produced for your downloadable digital delight and overall appreciation. In this episode, Tim Rose on how his union mixes with the big hitters in the worlds of both finance and mutuality. And do you know what you're entitled to in the COVID crisis? Lionel Fulton of the Labour Research Department introduces a new pamphlet that gives you the lowdown. Plus, the usual news roundup from around the industrial sectors. Hello and welcome to the Union News Podcast. I'm Simon Sapper. It's great to have you with us. For this episode later on, we'll be hearing from Lionel Thornton of the Labour Research Department about the work they're doing to make sure that we're all aware of what we're entitled to uh, under COVID and how we can go about getting it. We'll also have our usual roundup from around the industrial sectors, looking at what's happening in the creative sector, in the BA Betrayal campaign and a really good new podcast series on the Horizon scandal in the post office. But first, our special guest, Tim Rose, General Secretary of the Nationwide Group Staff Union. Now, not the snappiest of names, I think even he would admit, but actually, actually, if you're a single union employer working with one of the biggest hitters in the finance sector and the mutuality sector, how do you retain true independence? What structures, organisation and governance do you need to maintain that true independence? What are the strengths and advantages of working in this way as opposed to the challenges and constraints? It's a really fascinating insight. So here he is. Well, Tim Rose, General Secretary of the Nationwide Group Staff Union. Thank you very much for joining us on the Union Jews podcast. Uh, well, thank you for inviting me. My, my, my pleasure. I, I tell you what, listeners, I don't know if you're like me, but um, I didn't realise the scale of the operation until I started doing a bit of research for this dis- discussion. Uh, Nationwide is, is the largest building society by far in the UK, one of the largest in the world, has assets of about two thirds of the total building society asset register in the, in the UK, is bigger than all the other 44 building societies in the UK put together, 18,500 people, the majority of whom are your members. It's, you know, this is, this is, it's a big player, isn't it? They are a significant player and a great flag waver for mutuality, I think. And that hasn't always been the case, of course, because they, they certainly came under a, um, pressure to convert to a bank when we saw some of the other building societies like Halifax and Abbey National convert held out which you know we're really keen that they preserve mutuality and you know long may mutuality exist i think i think it, it, does that mean that your your members are not employees so much as, as partners in the kind of john lewisy type type way or is it not quite the same no not quite the same <laughs> though sometimes we do refer to john lewis so at the point when john lewis were getting big bonuses <laughs> um, it, <laughs> it was quite nice to make that comparison but but no, they are they are employees rather than partners as such. But they all do identify, I think, with being a building society and um, certainly putting the society members first. I see. Um, so it was against the tide, wasn't it, of what was happening at the moment when nationwide members voted against demutualisation. I mean, that was that was quite a a landmark, I suppose. 
Yeah, it was. It was. Um, I was working in the complaints department at Nationwide at the time, and there was quite a lot of uh, vitriol and a lot of people who were putting pressure on the society to to convert and get that quick hit on shares, you know. And so I think it did take some considerable effort to resist that at that time. But of course, now it, it gives the society a bit of a unique sort of selling position, as you'll have seen from the the advertising campaigns and the poems, you know, they're very much focusing on being a building society and differentiating from the banks and being able to say, we look after our members as opposed to our shareholders. So it can be quite a powerful message, I think. And is that supportive of the union's role as a one employer union, that distinctiveness? Does that, is that something that, that tightens the, the bonds, if you like, rather than loosens them? Yes, I think it does. Um, we have a, you know, really close relationship with the society, which is hugely beneficial for our members because we're able to have, you know, real, regular, constructive dialogue. There is a, sometimes a, a worry, I think, of a perception that we are, we are too closely involved with the, with the organisation. And, and I think sometimes because of the way we operate, we, we do a lot behind closed doors members don't always necessarily see the extent and robustness of some of the conversations and, and discussions and negotiations that we have. But we feel very much part of, of Nationwide. The majority of our members are Nationwide employees. We do have a small kind of cohort of pensioner members, a few people who have moved from Nationwide under Tupi, and we, we've continued to have collective rights for them. And then some who've left Nationwide and have chosen to stay with NGSU, but we feel very much part of that family and and as a stakeholder in the business. Yes, it certainly would meet the point I've often heard from employers who insist on lay lay reps being their employees. You're right. There is a there is a force that that gives the arguments and representations that are being made because everyone's got an interest in the in the business doing as well as as well as possible. What's the sort of structure of the union then? Are you, uh, do you mirror the branch-based structure of the business or do you have a, uh, how, does it, how does it work? Yeah, so we, well, we have a small central team with uh, a range of uh, number of individual cases officers who are supporting members, obviously, with um, disciplinary grievances and, and general support. Some of those are based in um, nationwide admin centres. So again, that's another advantage. We actually have offices within some of the big admin sites where um, and we have access to all of their equipment and, and, and site there. In terms of our, our, our structure, we have um, a structure of regional councils. So we have 170-ish reps across the organisation. We organise those into branch regional councils. So there are four of those covering whole of the UK. So that's 650 plus branches. We then have pretty much a regional council covering each of the of the big admin centres. So there's a big admin centre in Northampton, a couple of smaller ones in Sheffield, Wakefield. So we organise that. So that would be contact centres, collections, arrears, those kind of, of, of departments. And then we have three covering the, the estate in Swindon, which is more extensive. So still some doing contact centres, but then some of the back office departments, technology HR, we do have quite a lot of members still in HR. Yeah, you know, our range is extensive. So we cover the whole of the organisation and that's that's our structure. So exclusively NGSU. We then have a joint structure with Nationwide, which is called the Employee Involvement Committee. And um, 
the Employee Involvement Committee is, is an overarching committee where we are able to consult and have information and, 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 and see things at a high strategic level. But then below that, there's a, a committee for every part of the organisation, which is attended, chaired by a senior manager from Nationwide, one of our team, and then our reps from that area, um, exclusively Nationwide NGSU discussion. Some of them meet monthly, some of them quarterly for the committee to decide. And, and the issues are, are, are different, obviously, for different parts of the business. But we absolutely have the ability to influence, have a conversation at all parts of the organisation and at all levels. I can see that from the structure you you, you describe. And, and I also get the, the split between the overarching kind of information and consultation directive V type body and then the, the, the nuts and bolts really uh, hands on operational stuff. As, a, as an employer, does, does the nationwide group tend to, to keep things in house or, or have they outsourced stuff and undergone the sort of process restructuring and engineering that, that a lot of companies have? to concentrate on what they regard as their core business? There's been a certain amount of offshoring. So some of the technology support is, is in India, but we actually have an agreement that covers some of these issues. And so there's a commitment that no, what we would call voice, so contact centres, branches, that sort of stuff, all, all of that stays within the UK. Uh, there's a whole range of things that kind of cover the relationships with external suppliers so we have some oversight in that in terms of, you know, going through due diligence, what, what kind of employers are they, that sort of stuff. So, but most of it's within the UK. So within that theatre of operations, as it were, what, before COVID came along, what were the sort of main issues that were, were challenging uh, the union and its members? What, what was kind of on the negotiating agenda? Well, the finance sector has um, been through quite some t- turmoil, hasn't it? And there have been a number of issues and, and, and the whole industry is changing. And I suppose the key thing around that has been the move towards mobile digital banking and more automation. And that was an issue before COVID. <laughs> it's going to be a bigger issue um, after COVID because there are a lot of customers who perhaps still resisted doing mobile banking who have had no choice but to kind of join that revolution. So, so the issues that flow from that within the branch network We've seen footfall from customers reduced dramatically. And as you know, Simon, across, across the whole of the finance banking industry, you know, branches are closing in, in, in significant numbers. Yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah. But nationwide, nationwide currently have what they call a branch promise, which is if you have a branch in your town today, you'll still have a branch in your town by March 2021. It's not a huge length of time away, though, is it? Well, no, but it was, to, to, to be fair, it came in last year. So it was a kind of a two-year two, two, two promise. Um, there are some slight tweaks on that in that if you're in a, in a, in a big town with, with several branches, there might be some merging within the town. But, um, but nevertheless, the, you know, the pressure is, is, is on there in terms of um, number of transactions, number of customers using the, the branches. So that was an issue in terms of um, how do you use that spare capacity or um, stranded labour is a... Is a term I think some people use in in that respect. So how do you you know how do you find useful work for them to do? Now, from our our members' point of view, what what that's meant is numbers of people in the branch network have reduced quite significantly. And that presents issues around resourcing. So clearly, there are security issues 
Um, thankfully, things like branch raids are very rare these days, but but security is still an issue. And, you know, honestly, Simon, there has just been some atrocious behaviour from customers, both before COVID-19, but, but since COVID-19. The last quarter of 2019, you know, there were six physical assaults on branch staff. Goodness. You know, so we often hear that in respect yeah. of workers and NHS, but, but banks and building society workers are, are not immune from that either. Yeah, sad reflection of, of the times we live in, yeah. But then there's kind of well-being point of view, if there were a few of you in the branch and it actually is busy, you know, how do you get to take your breaks? That has been um, a long and uh, consistent line of discussion between us about how we find that spot of, of, of getting resourcing, which is appropriate to the business and the demand from nationwide customers, but making sure the branch staff are, are properly protected. Then the automation then kind of t- goes in another direction in terms of big investment from nationwide into technology. So, so, so more automation, you know, more digital banking. What does that mean for people in contact centres and, and the back office administration departments if customers are going to be able to do more self-service? So we've been having a bit of a theme of, of jobs, jobs for now and jobs for the future. How can you create an environment that allows people to reskill? How can we find useful work for the branch network to, to do? Because that's to everybody's advantage. You can keep jobs in the, in the branch network, you know, right across communities in the UK. Keeps branches open, which is a good thing from a, from a nationwide perspective. It's good, good, good um, public relations, I think, to keep branches open in some communities where where the banks have closed. Yes, indeed, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and, and what COVID-19 has done has um, presented an opportunity in that branches are, are working reduced hours at the moment in terms of opening to the public. There's some spare capacity there. The contact centres have been working reduced hours as well. Demand on their services has risen, though. So we've seen some of the branch staff being able to link into the contact centre, take some of those calls, process some of the digital transactions that come through from the, from the online bank. And that's definitely presented the prospect of, is there other work that they can do? You know, how can that, that retail space be used to maximum effect and, and keep jobs? A load of issues that go with that, though. Uh, clearly, branch staff you know, have skills in terms of face-to-face uh, relationships with customers. They didn't sign up to be in a contact centre. You know, so we've got some of those things to work through. But in terms of securing jobs and, and being realistic to, to the evolving situation which is going to happen, in banking and finance uh, there's certainly some opportunities there i think yeah i mean i think i think about my own local high street down here in south london and and i can see exactly the picture that you you and your colleagues are dealing with all the, all the time barclays has gone hsbc has gone natwest has gone nationwide's still there when you walk past you know you see very clearly signposted only come into the branch if you absolutely have to all sorts of arrangements are being made to keep staff safe, keep the service open for customers who need it. But there's a presence on the high street and there's capacity. And although that's challenging, it's a huge opportunity, isn't it? It's a huge opportunity to kind of reuse the skills that are, exist amongst your membership, the, the, the building society staff in, in a, in a totally reimagined way. I mean, that, yeah, there's some good possibilities there if they can be harnessed. I think so. Uh, and the nature of the transactions that 
branch network are doing are changing as well. So you can do your basic banking through an ATM or, or, or mobile app or, or, or online bank. Um, it's, it's when something more difficult happens that then you perhaps need to go into a branch, have a conversation with someone face to face, you know, seek their help and guidance through through a particular transaction. And that's where their skills really come to the fore. And that, that's where Nationwide offers a really good service proposition and, and, and consistently sits at the top of service polls. Uh, indeed, but it also sits quite highly in the best places to work tables as well, doesn't it? Which has got to be as a result of the work of the union. I absolutely believe that over the years, you know, we have helped create that 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 good place to work. We are essential to it. And we've been a constant. I mean, if 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 Tim Poyle, my, my predecessor, was sat here, you know, he'd tell you that he'd he'd his tenure of general secretary, he'd seen five chief executives come and go. You know, so the amount of kind of corporate knowledge and consistency that's been there, that constant voice speaking up on behalf of employees influencing the the working environment we, we we truly are a stakeholder in that sense i think yeah i mean i think collective voice is just so important and, and so lack it you you it, it's a great advertisement for the value of collective voice that's that's what i would say in, in terms of in terms of covid and and the union's response to it and the employer's response to it how how's how's it been i think it's been as good as as we could hope it to be given that it was completely unprecedented for for everyone so one of the things we did pretty early on was we, we created an online feedback survey on our website and we promoted that with members through our newsletters and through our rep network and we had well over a thousand responses which for us is is pretty good rate of return Simon I have to say and that gave us so much data and information about what was happening in the different parts of of the business and of course it's different in different areas so so branch network different to contact centers and that's been absolutely vital in having realistic conversations with nationwide about the responses um, overall it's pretty good you know there are some very comprehensive risk assessments now in place for for branches and admin centers over the past few days we've been talking about potential ease of lockdown what does that mean very clear that the buildings at Nationwide have got limited capacity. So there's going to be no rush to bring people back beyond safe levels. Um, I have great confidence in the property services team at Nationwide. So I have a weekly call with head of property services and the chief chief and safety officer. I have a weekly call with the head of people and culture, HR by any other name. Um, I'm part of a serious incident group that looks at employees, which meets once or twice a week, depending on what the government have announced over the weekend or the night before, which obviously is, you know, changes. Um, So we have a voice and influence almost daily. I I could pick up the phone to the chief executive if I felt worried and he would take my call and I, I know he would and he would respond. So that's not to say... Our members aren't worried. You know, they are key workers. You know, bank workers probably get forgotten a little bit in this, bank and building society workers. And, and, and there is this legacy of, you know, the finance sector caused the crash in 2008 and they're all rogues. But, you know, my members who sit on branch counters and, and man contact centres, you know, starting salary 17,500 didn't cause the financial crash, you know. So it's, it's totally unfair to tarnish everyone with that brush. 
Gosh, I mean, is that, is that really a thing? Is there still a, a legacy issue that comes, comes around and raises its head and barks every now and then? I think there is a, a, at a high level, and, and of course, rightly so, because we can't deny that you know, elements of the financial services sector were responsible for, for, for the 2008 crash. But as I say, it wasn't my members responsible for that. You know, and they're worried. They are, they are worried. They're still worried. We're starting to see a bit of an ease of, 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 of lockdown. And, and as I kind of mentioned to you, one of the things is branches are opening 10 till 2. That means there's a bit of a build-up of customers outside the branch at, at 10 o'clock. That's difficult to manage in terms of social distance out in the street. They're being allowed in, depending on the capacity of the branch and how many counters they've got. That can be difficult if people want to kind of come in. If you can't meet the transaction, as I say, for a small but but growing number of people, those frustrations tip over into their behaviour. So, you know, breathing on surfaces, coughing in people's faces, you, you wouldn't believe it. Gen- genuinely abhorrent. Oh, no, that is terrible. Behavior. Terrible, terrible stuff. Yeah. So they're worried. The society, I think, is watching what's happening on the high street. So as more branches or, or more other shops are starting to open, that will bring more demand back to the high street. How do you start to get back to normal? And their conversations we're having at the moment, pretty clear that there is no rush to get people back to work. Those risk assessments are very carefully crafted and um, limit the capacity of, of people in branches. So it's a watching and evolving brief. The society has been great in terms of obviously the people who've been shielding, but then also people with um, vulnerability. We agreed some additional emergency dependence leave for those with childcare, something which was agreed, which had a label of domestic leave, which wasn't probably quite the right title, but it was there for people who were truly worried about coming into work, whether that was being on public transport or whatever. And so that was two weeks paid where they could, could, could be safe. They could have the conversations with their managers, understand what needed to happen to get them back into the workplace um, and be safe. And then, of course, alongside that, there are now 11,000 nationwide employees working from home, back bedrooms, dining room tables, you know, massive effort. And that's that's going to change the future of work. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the, the debate that presumably is starting to form already, the agenda starting to form already, which is if they can work at home so well, then why do they need to come back? And what does that do to the demand on the estate or the demand for estate? It's, it's a curate's egg. But, I mean, there's, you know, there's the opportunity for a win-win scenario, but it's not guaranteed. <laughs> No, no. And, and there are issues that go along with that, aren't there? And we've seen terrible increase in domestic violence and, and not everybody's got a suitable working space and there are workplace, you know, workstation issues and mental health problems. So, but for some, and perhaps the many, the opportunity to, to flex more between home and work could bring some real benefits, I think. Yeah, a, a real case of watch this space, I suppose, but a full... Yeah, I mean, curiously, we supported them on the day of lockdown... We supported someone in a flexible working appeal um, who'd been declined from uh, their request to be a home worker. And then within days and weeks, 11,000 employees are now working from home. So those arguments go away. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, certainly all the naysayers and that it can't be done and, you, you know, that's had a wrecking ball put through, put through it. But rebuilding after that wrecking ball is hit is, is a challenge for everyone, I think. 
I think so. I think so. But, 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 but opportunities again. So, you know, nationwide is, is very much Swindon centric um, in terms of some of the technology head office type roles. What we've proved through, through this is those jobs could be offered to people across the country. If we could turn back and, and look at look at the union itself in the time we have left, uh, Tim. Of course, you, you, you mentioned Tim Poyle, your, your your predecessor, general secretary for the best part of thirty years. Tremendous record, 31. tremendous contribution. Thirty one. What are your hopes and ambitions for the for the NGSU in in the period ahead? Well, I'm I'm lucky. I mean, I worked alongside Tim for fifteen years, so you know I had the privilege of watching him in action and learning from him. And and as you can imagine. NGSU is so dear to his heart he, he's still there in the background for me as a mentor and he's being incredibly helpful to me and supportive and he will forever be part of NGSU there, there yeah is no, no, that's good to about. hear good to hear yeah I suppose my first hope is that we're still seen as as, as relevant continuing that that legacy that Tim Tim has had that members still see the value that we bring that we are still as strong, you know, in five years' time at the end of my term of office, and we've maintained that legacy that Tim Tim left us. As I said to you before we started, you know, I didn't sign I didn't sign up for COVID nineteen, so it's been a bit of a baptism of fire in that respect. There's kind of no no chance really to sort of stop and think and and, and plan particularly because we've been dealing with events as they evolve. But I think what that's opened up is. We've proved that we can, you know, carry on the flag and membership is strong. It's actually been growing a little bit through the past few weeks. So we're, our, our fortunes are always linked directly with the society. So if people leave, that can hit our membership. If there are redundancies, that can hit our membership. At the moment, it's stable. We have agreed a no redundancy uh, in 2020 policy with Nationwide. That's great for this year. But there will be change next year. People will, will will leave, I'm sure. And so our hope is still that we continue that good relationship where we can genuinely put the interests of our members to the fore. We can support them in the right way. It is a private sector company. It is being hit by, nationwide's being hit by, you know, historically low interest rates. That puts a pressure on margins. That puts a pressure on profitability it's a fine balance then in terms of how we get good value back for our members that they are properly rewarded for the, the, the effort that they do. But clearly we have a responsibility too in respect of the organization continuing and being sustainable because that's the way we'll keep majority of members in jobs and, and well-paid and well-rewarded. And that does present challenges. So we're in a, in the midst of our pay review at the moment. You know, had that been a few months ago, it might have been very different. But but now we're kind of looking into all of the additional costs that have gone with responding to the COVID-19 situation, the hit on profitability, which will inevitably feed through. So plenty of challenges. Yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> but I have a great team. We've had some other changes as well. Marion Dean, who's um, our long-term assistant general secretary, she, she left at the end of the year, as did one of our, our long-term cases officers. So we've, we've lost three very experienced people at the same time. So, so one of my th- issues is around succession planning, making sure that we've got some people coming through now, some new opportunities. They're all responding in a brilliant way. 
We continue to have good working relationships with Nationwide. That is immensely helpful because I know that if I've got an issue, I can, I've got several routes through the organisation. Yeah. Lucky in that way. Yes. Well, that's great. I mean, it sounds like it sounds like the organisation is coping well in a very stressful situation. And as you say, Tim left you a, a good platform on which to build and on which you are building. Uh, it's uh, it's certainly I, from the outside looking in, I'd say it's certainly a, a glass that's more than half full. So, power to your elbow. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And I think we are. I think we genuinely are a good advert for working in partnership, the collective voice. We are, we are independent, we absolutely speak up and we are robust on behalf of our members. I don't, I'm not sure they always see that sometimes because we have those conversations behind closed doors um, and once you've reached an agreement, I think it's appropriate that you, both parties stand behind that. But I think if you were to speak to somebody in Nationwide, they would say we absolutely live up to that, that brief and uh, you know, we fight as hard as we possibly can for the interests of our members also in that balance of, of being realistic about working in the private sector. Well, Tim, thanks so much for, for spending time with us on the Union Juice podcast. So best of luck going forward. Uh, I look forward to seeing how it develops. Uh, and uh, I wish you and yours well as we, uh, we struggle to get over COVID and get back to normal. Thank you, Simon. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that. I mean, we all know, don't we? Unions come in all shapes and sizes, generalist unions covering many different sectors or employers. Some organise vertically from the lowest grades to the MD or chief exec. Others organise horizontally, even non-supervisory grades or others predominantly managerial professional layers. But actually, the organising challenge, the criteria for success are, are the same, aren't they? At its heart, the success or otherwise of any unions all unions is the ability to recruit, organise, retain members and to accurately and effectively articulate their concerns to their employer. And really, that's as much a cultural matter as a, as a strategic or structural matter. If you've got that at your heart, you're not going to go far wrong, I would guess. What do you think about what Tim had to say? What do you think about that analysis about what makes unions successful? We want your views. Join the discussion. You can email me at unionjews at makesyouthink.com. You can tweet us at Jews Union. Join the discussion. We'd love to hear from you. Come on now. You know you want to. Now, the Labour Research Department has a new publication out this week. I spoke to Lionel Fulton, who's been working with the LRD for about 40 years, uh, to tell us a bit about what it's all about. Yeah, it's uh, a booklet. It's called uh, State Support um, During Coronavirus. And the idea is it's to provide a guide to people as to what they can hope to get in financial terms from the range of uh, support programmes that are on offer. And it really goes through each of the various possibilities, starting off with coronavirus job retention scheme, which is the furloughing scheme, going through provisions for the self-employed, because although we see trade unionists as primarily being employees, these days there are lots of people who are self-employed, even if it's bogus self-employed. And then looking at what happens in terms of people who are off sick, who are socially isolating or shielding, and then finally people who are unemployed or see their income dramatically reduced as a result of the uh, consequences of the coronavirus pandemic. So it looks at each of those in turn. Gosh, and we are talking about a very significant percentage of the, of the working population there, aren't we? Um, if you look at the people who are shielding, 
isolating uh, or on one of those support schemes, you're talking about way over 35, 40% of the... Of, of yeah, the, absolutely. Example. I mean, there's, I think the latest figures is it's the, there are 8.9 people who are furloughed at the moment. And I think 2.5 people have have looked for support through the um, self-employment scheme. Yeah, I suppose it wouldn't be an LRD publication if it, if it wasn't interlaced with practical illustrations about what unions have been able to do to get better deals for their members. Yeah, I mean, that, that's particularly with reference to the, the furloughing scheme where you've got examples of people able to get to hang on to 100% of their pay where they've got, got some examples of people who have been able to have a, a greater influence the unions have been able to have a greater influence of exactly who is being furloughed it also relates to, to statutory sick pay or, or sick pay schemes more generally where often unions have been able to say right you're going to get more people are going to get statutory sick pay than uh, the legislation actually requires clearly by the time you move on to what's available for, directly from the state in terms of universal credit in terms of the employment and support scheme in terms of job seekers allowance new start job seekers allowance i should say when you look at those things essentially there the unions have got less opportunity to influence things because there that's a direct relationship between individual em- employees or ex-employees and the state but nevertheless I think it's important that people should know what they're entitled to we're not saying this is the, the, the detailed guide to every single wrinkle of how the system works because that's fantastically complicated but to give people a clear indication of what they can expect to get and how they need um, what may be the right choice for them because they're different things that they can attempt to apply for so the idea is to give people a guide in what's going to be a very what are undoubtedly very very difficult circumstances well i mean every union rep i've spoken to and i speak to to quite a lot of them as you can imagine has said exactly the same thing this is unprecedented not just because it is an unprecedented issue but the challenge it faces it presents in terms of making sure members are looked after and properly represented and properly advised Uh, i mean this publication is clearly a a, a keystone in that arch if you like If, if listeners are not already affiliated or not already members of unions are affiliated to LRD where can they get this publication from well they can get it from our website is probably the easiest thing to do if they go to www.lrd.org.uk they'll find that publication and indeed our other publications and also some information about us as an organization so that's or what do people do these days all they need to do is search for the labor research department put that into a search engine if you find it now LRD of course has been around for a long, long time, you know, over a hundred years, and you've been involved in the organisation for about forty years. I know what are the changes that you've seen both in, in in the union movement and in the way LRD serves the union movement during that period of time. If you look at the union movement, you have to say that compared to say the period in the late nineteen seventies, this was when there the, the, were the largest number of uh, union members in the UK. At that point, something like half of all employees in, in Britain were union members. Today, the number is much lower. Today's you're talking about around about a quarter of people who are in, in unions. That's clearly a major difference. The, the trade unions themselves have changed in their structures. You used to have lots of medium-sized unions, many of which have gone into the, the, the big very large unions which which exist today into Unite, into into the GMB, into Unison, all of those three 
major unions, and obviously there are other big and important unions around, but if you look at each of those three, they are the, the, the product of significant mergers. So I think that's a big, that's a big change. I think that clearly their changes, the unions are affected by, by changes that society is affected by, so much more expectation that you're making links electronically rather than just being sent to the circular, as would have been the case in the past. And I think you've also seen changes in the, the broad industrial relations background in the sense that unions now are more prepared to look at what the law offers them, whereas perhaps if you're looking at 40 years ago, they would have said, right, we have the strength at the workplace, we can just say, we want this to happen, and if you don't, I'm happy to go along with that, and we're going to walk out. That is much more difficult today, if not just because there's a whole series of, of obstacles that you have to overcome before you could even get people to, to take any sort of industrial action. And, and within LRD itself, is that, have you seen those sort of changes, the digitalization, the, the changing nuances of, of the publications that, that have most resonance with, with your yeah, subscribers? Yeah, I mean, clearly, yeah, I mean, clearly um, the fact that people now are very keen to know exactly what their rights are. So very much the biggest sellers that we have are those that are linked to people's rights at work. So I think, I think that is a change. And it reflects the, the, the reality of industrial relations today, really. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I think actually if one were to write a history of LRD over the last 40 years, you'd probably also have a fairly accurate history of the labour movement uh, as well. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll put that in the fish tank and let it swim around a bit. Maybe, maybe something will come of that. Dino, yeah. thank you very much. Lovely okay. to see you again. Right. I hope that's what you wanted. Perfect. Thank you. Great. Our regular roundup of news from around the industrial sectors now kicking off with British Airways. BA Betrayal is the Twitter handle, the Twitter account rather that you need to you need to look at for an update on what's happening here. The formal consultation on redundancy period has just closed. Uh, the temperature is really heating up in terms of the criticism of the company and the approaches adopted. The House of Commons Transport Select Committee has delivered a scathing verdict. Uh, characterised in most of the papers as calling BA a national disgrace. Celebrities have lined up to condemn the way in which the company has handled the restructuring exercise and opportunistically exploited coronavirus in the views of many correspondents. Unite in particular have have drawn a very sharp connection between what BA is doing because it says it's because it says it's cash strapped it's got financial crisis and the fact it's just spent a small fortune or a large fortune even uh, in terms of an acquisition of a rival airline so all power to the elbow of those campaigning to stop BA's reckless cavalier approach you can keep up to date with the campaign and sign the petition to support those who are trying to get a more rational, sensible approach uh, to this at uh, on Twitter at BA Betrayal. To the creative sector now, and Beck to continue to push for the gaps in the coronavirus compensation schemes, that's the CJRS and the self-employed version, the SEISS, to be closed. Thousands of workers, mostly freelancers in the creative sector, have been excluded from both schemes and are therefore reliant on universal credit or whatever savings they may or may not have. The Treasury Select Committee was the latest to weigh in in favour of the union's arguments, endorsing the view that too many people had been left out. 
of the scheme and it's not just the union and it's not just the select committee that have been active in in this space groups like forgotten paye bbc freelancers forgotten 2020 uh, directors uk wftv uk they've all been pushing the government to close up these gaps groups like uh, pregnant then screwed uh, have actually threatened to take the government to court because they believe the schemes deficiencies render it liable in in a legal sense but the problem is not just the individuals who are clearly suffering hardship and a lot of distress as a result of this, it's also to do with the sector as a whole because with so many theatres or studios dark or, or unable to be opened, unable, unable to work, there's a worry that a lot of these places are not going to be able to weather the storm. They just won't reopen at all. And that's why the Union Bector is calling for a Marshall Plan for the sector to give that sort of root and branch support to ensure that, first of all, this sector is not denuded of capacity when we eventually emerge from the corona crisis, and secondly, to ensure that the loss to society that that would represent is avoided. You can keep up with the latest developments on the BEC2 website, which is www.bec2.org.uk. And finally, a plug for a podcast that's running on BBC Sounds called The Great Post Office Trial. Now, this is all about how postmasters and postmistresses were treated by their employer, the post office, when a supposedly foolproof, error-free accounting software program called Horizon was rolled out and then went wrong. The post office said, ah, they've got to be people who are thieving, people who are ripping us off. The the postmasters and postmistresses said, no, actually, no, this is a problem in, in the in the system. Their union, or was a union at the time in name, the National Federation of Sub-Postmasters, backed the employer, not the members. The union was delisted as an independent union in 2014, and the postmasters and postmistresses were found right and vindicated shortly after that, thanks to some great legal work. And the journalist Nick Wallace has been following this story for over 10 years, and originally there were a series of broadcasts on Radio 4 which have now been consolidated and put on the BBC Sounds app as, as a podcast. If you want to hear about how justice triumphs over adversity, if you want to hear about how, how a union walked away from its members and their leaders betrayed the trust placed in them by, the, by those members, this is something you need to listen to. Kudos to those members who stuck with it all the way through, to the lay leadership of the postmasters and postmistresses who went over and found a proper trade union home in the CWU, and to Nick Wallace, the journalist, for, for making such a compelling story. Well, listeners, that's just about it for this episode. Thank you so much for choosing to spend your time with us. I hope you've enjoyed it. hope it's made you think. Please join the discussion. Let us know what you do think, what you liked, what you didn't like, your ideas, your thoughts about what we could feature in future episodes. You can email us at unionjews at makesyouthink.com. You can tweet us at Jews Union. And if you head over to the website, www dot makes hyphen you hyphen think dot com uh, you can find a companion blog in which all the links and signposting to all the things we've discussed in this episode will be there for you to follow up should you wish if you get a chance please do rate us on the podcasting platform of your choice those ratings really do make a big difference as we beat the algorithms to reach even more people than we do at the moment it just leaves me to say a big thank you to all the key workers who are keeping us going during this pandemic. Don't forget, there is still no effective test, track and trace. There is still no cure or vaccination against coronavirus. 
we need to continue to stay safe and do what we can to protect ourselves, others and the NHS. And a particular shout out to those in the non-food retail sector who, of course, have been brought back into the front line as a result of government changes to the lockdown restrictions from this week onwards. <clears throat> I'd hope that all of you would agree with me when I say there really can be no peace without justice and black lives matter. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing, please stay safe and I'll see you soon. Bye for now. The Union Dues podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.